while you're finding your spots there, I will have you stand again in a moment here. Because I like us to read standing. I think that just kind of honors God's word. What do you think? So let's stand now. Let's read these first six verses. And if you were here two weeks ago for the convention, uh, Dr. Longman brought out the idea that the Psalms are a worship manual. And actually Psalm 1 is the introduction to entering into God's presence. And the thing we have to address when we enter God's presence, because he's a holy God, he's other than us, that we have to address the issue of sin, which is a barrier to him. And so we read about that in Psalm 1. So let's read it together. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And Father, we pray today as we look at the way of the righteous, we look at the path that you've called us to walk. And Lord, it's, it's, a, it's a narrow path and it's got challenges to it. But we recognize that with your wisdom and grace, we can walk the path. We can live out this life. We can respond to the challenges that our culture and individuals bring into our life. Lord, help us to respond and not to react. Help us to respond in a way that would honor you that we would address the issues of sin in our own soul, but also the issues of sin in the lives of others, Lord. And I pray that we will develop the right mindset and the right attitude. Help us to be instructed today. Lord, even as I've been reflecting over this passage in the book of Hebrews, today, if we hear your voice, help us not to harden your heart. Lord, give us tender, open hearts to respond to your word, to embrace it, Lord, to allow it to shape our thinking and to shape our behavior. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn. This is going to sound strange because I just told our staff, I'm not going to preach from the Gospel of John, but today I am. So we're going to turn to the Gospel of John. And, and Mel, this one's for you because we had a little conversation in, in an elders meeting, we were discussing some issues and, and, and Mel pointed out to me that we need to hear messages like this that will really instruct us in how we relate to issues of sin in the lives of people around us. You know, a minister uh, had a little six-year-old daughter and she was, you know, being a six-year-old and sometimes six-year-olds misbehave. How many know that happens? And so her wife, the wife of the pastor, decided that he was going to discipline this little girl. And so she said to her, she had to think of something that would be meaningful. In other words, to, you know, impose a little punishment into her life. She had done something that was wrong. And so she made this decision not to allow her to attend the Sunday school picnic. And she knew that that was a really meaningful experience to her six-year-old daughter. And she was looking forward to it. And, uh, and so the day finally came for the picnic. And the mother, you know, realized maybe it was a little harsh on the punishment. Maybe, you know, 
Her just kind of going through the experience now, thinking she couldn't go, you know, maybe that's enough punishment for her. So she came up to her daughter and she said to her, you know, I've changed my mind, I'm gonna let you go to the picnic. And when she noticed that the little girl's reaction wasn't immediate joy, but rather an unhappy expression, she said, well, what's the matter, dear? Oh, she says, it's too late. I already prayed that it would rain. (laughs) Oh, I tell you, kids can come up with the amazing things, right? But what does that little story, that little antidote tell us? That we really have a struggle when we're being disciplined. Nobody likes to be corrected. Nobody likes to be straightened out, right? Uh, But if it brings about a healthy outcome, that's a very important thing. I think one of the most difficult challenges of being a parent is having to discipline your child. And if you have more than one, it becomes even more difficult because you start to discover that every child is different. And what works with one child doesn't work with another child. And so sometimes children begin to get the idea that it's not fair. The way you're treating one child is not fair compared to how they've been treated. But part of it is you have to understand the nature of the person you're addressing. So, as I say, everything's great when kids are obeying, but you know, how many know that's not reality? That's not life. And part of growing up and part of maturing is learning from our mistakes. And how many know that that's not only true of children, it's also true of adults? And it's true of us in our Christian journey that God treats us at times like children. You know, we're not fully developed when we become a Christian. It takes years to begin to understand the ways of God and how God is shaping our lives and molding us and building us and developing us. And and sometimes we make good decisions and then other times we make wrong choices. And God loves us enough as a parent that he's going to address those things in our lives. And the reality is if we don't discipline our children when they do what's wrong, we begin to realize ultimately it's not a loving thing. And that's foreign to our culture today because we assume that letting people get away with everything is the loving thing to do. But you know, the Bible says, and it says this about love, love rejoices in the truth. And love doesn't rejoice when things are not healthy, when things are wrong, when, when children have gone astray. We have to correct that behavior because left uncorrected, we're doing a great disservice in the life of that child because they're not going to develop in a healthy way. And so if we don't correct them in love, then we're allowing that person to eventually learn behaviors and patterns in life that will be self-destructive and also called, cause pain to others. We have a moral responsibility as parents, right? To train our children in the right way. That's our responsibility. Now, I want to make a statement. Because we do that, that doesn't always mean things turn out the way we want them to. And I think we got to get away from this idea that we can control outcomes. Folks, in this room, no one in this room can control outcomes. None of us can. You know, if we had our way, this is the way it would go down. How many know it rarely goes down the way you plan it? 
You'll discover that about life. I've lived long enough to know that. Take my word for it. But we recognize that healthy discipline is an expression of love, and the Bible even says that for us. It says here in Hebrews, and you, have you forgotten the word of encouragement addresses you as sons, my son? Now, he's speaking in a general neutral uh, term here. This is daughters, too. You could say my sons and daughters, all right? Do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. You know, sometimes we want to, you know, lose heart when God's correcting us. But we need to understand that when God does something in our life that corrects us, it's always with the motivation intent for our good, that the outcome will be good. And he goes on to say, uh, because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son or daughter. And as a matter of fact, if we never are disciplined, as it goes on to say in this chapter, we have to question whether we're truly a child of God. Because God is going to correct his children. That's just the nature of who he is. God has an aim for all of our lives that we're going to grow up. And you know what the end of faith really is? That we become loving people. You know, so if we have faith in Christ and we're an unloving person, that means we're either not saved or we're very underdeveloped and immature in our understanding of Christianity because the scriptures teach that people will know that we are Christians by what? Our love towards one another. And that's another argument for why we assemble together. You know, people say, well, I get a lot more going out in the woods on the long weekend and worshiping in the mountains. And that may be true for you, but the design that God created is that we worship together in order to encourage each other. And you can't do that in isolation. And so God has designed us to be in community so that we can grow up spiritually. And we know that uh, another way maybe of expressing this thought is, is that we know that in all things God is working or he works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And, and so ultimately the end result there in verse 29, I don't have it on the uh, PowerPoint here, is for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. So God's goal for you and for me is to make you and I like him. We're becoming Christ-like. And I think we can learn from Jesus what it is to be like. So God is shaping us through our life's journey to become like him. And he wants to fill us with humility and compassion and gentleness and patience and forgiveness and forbearance, which is an idea of putting up with each other, right? And we walk through life's difficulties and injustices because life is filled with those things uh, and we start to learn how to handle all of that and we look at who the ultimate model is and the ultimate model is Jesus. And how many know he wasn't always treated nicely? But you know, Jesus had a way of treating people back pretty nicely. And he also had a way of addressing issues sometimes very pointedly. And we can see that when we study his life. Now, can you hear the heart of God as a parent in this text that I'm about to read. In Jeremiah 31, I'm reading from the message, and it goes like this. Watch them come. They'll come weeping for joy. This is after God had disciplined his people. Now Jeremiah's giving them a promise of encouragement. He says, I'll take their hands and lead them. I'll lead them to fresh flowing brooks, lead them along smooth, uncluttered paths. Yes, it's because I'm Israel's father, and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Israel and Ephraim are synonymous here, okay? It's, it's the same people he's talking about. I've heard the contrition of Ephraim. See, they've repented. 
Yes, I've heard it clearly saying, you trained me well, you broke me a wild yearling horse to saddle. You put, uh, now put me trained and obedient to use. You are my God. Now what is, what is Jeremiah basically saying? He's saying that when God has disciplined us and he has, in a sense, you know, taken a young horse that's unbroken, he's broken the horse in order to be useful. There's a lot of Christians that are like this horse that's untrained. They're unmanageable. They're undisciplined. They're unruly. God can't really use that person in the way he really wants to. He uses them, but it's very limited because he cannot, you know, you have to break a horse in order for the horse to really be trainable. And then he goes on to say, after those years of running loose, uh, I repented. After you trained me to obedience, I was ashamed of my past, my wild, unruly past. Humiliated, I beat on my chest, when, I says, will I ever live this down? And then finally, O Ephraim is my dear, dear son. I love the words of endearment here. My child in whom I take pleasure. Every time I mention his name, my heart bursts with longing for him. This is God talking about us, his kids. Is this powerful? God says, you know, when you and I respond to him, his heart just overflows towards us. It says, everything in me cries out for him softly and tenderly. I wait for him. Wow. Is that beautiful words? I think it is. I think what God is saying is, man, I, I am totally wrapped up in you guys. I'm totally invested. And when you respond to me, man, I'm so pleased with you. And there's so much we can do together. And I have such a longing towards you. Now, why then in life does our life become such a mess at times? And I'm gonna suggest two ideas. One idea is that it's nothing to do with us. We don't make bad choices. God allows difficult things to come into our lives. It's all part of the school to help us to mature. That's one scenario. But let's face it, there are other times we make very poor choices. And I know that because I've been a pastor for 32 years and believe me, people have shared their stories with me and many times it's the poor choices that bring people to this place of brokenness in their life. And the scriptures teach us like in Isaiah, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. When we have to have our way, be careful because God will let you. And it's gonna hurt. I can guarantee you. You're going to experience pain as a result of having your own way. So if you're a stubborn person today, I would say, oh God, help me with my stubbornness. Remove it from me. You know, mellow me out. You know, give me a broken, tender, contrite, open heart. Give me ears to just respond to you in obedience, you know. I'm learning a lot about the nature of God, and I'll tell you, I, I'm gonna trust what he wants me to do rather than what I want. He's a lot smarter. So, you know, sin not only destroys my relationship to God, but sin in my life will destroy my relationship to people. And if that's true for me, it's true for you. It's true for all of us. Amen? And we have to understand that, that our self-centeredness has negative ramifications in other people's lives. Now, there's a story that is found in John's Gospel. It's chapter eight, verses one through 11. I want you to turn there this morning. And I notice right off the bat, you know, people are interesting. 
Because it says here a little bit above that some of the earliest manuscripts don't have the story. But let me just say something. Most biblical scholars will argue that this is totally in keeping with the nature of Christ. As a matter of fact, the ideas that I'm going to bring out today are totally in keeping with the entire New Testament. And personally, I think the story belongs in the New Testament. And I think most scholars agree because they put it there. Okay? Everybody see that? Yeah. It's good. It should be there. And we're going to learn something from this amazing story. Now, one of the things that happens is it's amazing how blind we are to our own faults. How many say that's probably true? How many, if you ask my wife what my faults are, you'd get a far more clear and candid picture of my true nature, right? Because, you know, let's face it, if we tell people what we think we're like, we have a colored picture of what we're like. And other people, you know, will see us a little differently. And I think we need a composite picture, not only of what I think, but what Patty thinks, what Rachel thinks, what Andrea thinks, you know, what some of you think. But ultimately, it's what God thinks that really matters, true? Because he can see stuff that I can't see, and he can see stuff that you can't even see. And that's true of all of our lives. There's hidden things there. And so... I think we have a problem sometimes when we're addressing sin, especially in the lives of other people, that we don't see things very clearly. And as a matter of fact, Jesus talks about this. Now, this is an important passage, and I think it's much misunderstood in the church today. It says, do not judge or you too will be judged. Now, I don't think what he's saying is, you know, don't, you know, don't evaluate things. I don't think he's saying that. But what he's saying is be careful how you're judging people. And when he, when he says this, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. So he's cautioning us in our judgment. Everybody see that? He's cautioning us how we go about judging. He says, you're going to be measured by the measuring stick you're using. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but, you know, I go, oh, be careful here how I assess this. Because if I pull out the, the standard that I'm going to create, God's going to go, great, I'll use it on you too. Now, some of us go, well, then I'm going to have a lot of liberty with my judging because I don't want to make sure that I don't have this thing coming against me. But I think we have to factor that in our minds. And then it goes on, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? In other words, you're blinded to your own problem. And sometimes the very things that irk us the most in other people are the things we're the most guilty of. And we don't even know it. And that's why it's bugging us. We can't even understand why this bugs me. And so we need to ask the question, when something is really bothering you, you need to ask the first question, why does this bug me? Isn't that a good question to ask? I think you ought to ask yourself that question. I have to ask myself this question. If this is bugging me, why? Because I may be guilty of it. And I just don't see it. Okay, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? In other words, Jesus is saying, be careful, you're not the bigger hypocrite here. You're busy judging this person for this behavior, but you're actually more guilty of it yourself. And then he goes on to say, you hypocrite, take the plank out of your own eye. So what is he telling us to do? He's not saying don't address the issue in the other person. He's just saying, make sure you address everything in yourself first. That's what he's saying. And then he says, then when you start to see clearly, you're more able to remove the problem in somebody else's life. 
So, I just write down, one of the great struggles we all face, how do we address sin, not only in our lives, but also in the lives of others? How many think that's a good question? Number two, how can I love and accept people without agreeing with their lifestyle decisions? Anybody have a struggle with that? Yeah, that's a toughie, isn't it? How can I support a person without endorsing their sinful choices? Isn't that, what am I trying to say? That we have a tendency as human beings to go from one extreme to the next. It's very hard to figure out how to express support and affirmation and love to a person when you don't agree with what they're doing and you know what they're doing is a sinful choice and you know what they're doing is destructive to them and you know what they're doing is gonna hurt other people but yet you know that they need to be loved in order for them to even begin to address the issue in their life. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. So I'm going to give you three things to consider, three attitudes that Jesus models for us so that we can handle this situation. So if anybody's interested in how to handle this very difficult topic, I would write down these three attitudes. Number one attitude is uh, the tendency to condemn other other people's sinful behavior. Now, Two of these attitudes are wrong and one of them's right. So I wanna look at the two extremes and then I wanna look at exactly how we should deal with it. Do you know, it's often people who have the strongest sense of what's right and wrong who struggle with judgment issues. And I'm gonna say it this way. Everyone in this room, we all have strengths. Some of you are more prophetic in nature. You're more wired to the right thing. So when you see the wrong thing, something rises within you and you're angry about it, okay? That's actually a good thing. The only time, it, but you know, how many know that usually it's our strengths that cause us the greatest problems in life? Because we tend to rely on our strengths and we tend to default to that. And so often, you know, I think anger, but I'm gonna shock you guys, I think anger is a good thing when it's in the right time and in the right place because it motivates us to deal with things. And a lot of us in this room are cowards when it comes to addressing issues. We think we're really loving when in reality we have moral cowardice in front of our name. We just don't wanna deal with it. We don't want the hassle. We don't wanna go through the, the difficulty and yet we're prepared to let people perish just so that we can stay comfortable. So I'm not putting down this person that, you know, has that prophetic nature, says, hey, we gotta do the right thing. But what I'm gonna warn us, if we have that prophetic nature, listen to me, don't overuse your strength. You need to temper your prophetic nature with grace. You need to temper it with love and understanding. Because if you don't, you're gonna hurt a lot of people. You're gonna become a Pharisee. You're gonna become very critical and very judgmental and you're gonna turn people off from God himself. The only one that can save them. So be very careful. I'm telling us, this, this is a message that's gonna to speak to all of us today because we're gonna to tend to go default from one side to the next. That's gonna happen. We're all there somewhere. So nobody's going, well, you're not speaking to me today. No, 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 no. I'm speaking to all of us, including myself, because we want to bend to one side or the other. So now, you know, if you're that prophetic nature, I got to do what's right kind of person, and I don't like it when people don't do what's right, you need to mellow and chill a little bit and learn how to be more accepting and graceful in your approach to people who are doing the wrong thing. You know, look at what happens in the story. Woman is caught in adultery. Pick up the story in verse one. It says, uh, 
Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appears again in the temple courts. That's verse 2. And when all the people gathered around him, he sat down to teach them. Now, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses. Now, they're, they're quoting the law of Moses. By the way, it, she was caught in a- adultery. And the law did forbid that, and so they were right to say that what she did was wrong. That's not the problem. Where's the guy in the story, though? I think there's a problem, number one. So these guys are not being honest, okay? They're trying to entrap Jesus. And so they said, in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? Now, why did they say that? Because they knew that Jesus was connecting with the sinners and they wanted to alienate his following. See, they're just, they have an ulterior motive. We know that. They're trying to entrap Christ. Now, what does Jesus do? Yeah, he ignores them. Now, what can I learn from this? Well, you know when somebody comes to me and says, well, so-and-so was involved in this. Well, my attitude is, this is what I say, well, have you talked to them? No. Well, I'm going to ignore everything you're saying because that's just now gossip. Come on now. How many in this room, you've seen a behavior and you've made an assumption, but you never go talk to that person, so you just assume they're in the wrong. How many have ever had a moment in your life where you said to yourself, I'm doing something. If somebody saw me now, they could easily interpret this the wrong way. Ever had that moment? And I'm thinking to myself, I'm a pastor, I gotta go do this. I know if I get seen in this spot at this moment, if somebody just comes by right now, they could misunderstand this completely, but they don't understand what I'm really trying to do here, okay? One of the guys, I was sharing this this morning, and they said, yeah, I know what you mean, pastor, because his work means he's gotta go pick up people, right? He has to go pick up people. He says, I'm trying to phone this person, and they're having a problem with their vehicles. I'm trying to get through to them, and they tell me they're at a gentleman's club. I can't get through to them, and I have to go in and get them. (laughs) Now, if somebody saw him walk in there, what do we think? See, we're very quick to make judgments, but you know what would have been better? If you saw that, now, that person could be going in for the wrong reasons or they could be going in for the right reasons. Isn't it kind of better to say, hey, I saw you the other day, you know? <laughs> yeah, and they could say, yeah, I was afraid of that and this is what happened. Oh, how many have ever had an experience where you, were, you saw something, you were upset about it, you're gonna go in there and read the riot act, but you just decide, maybe I better ask a question first. And I've, I've had moments like that, when, especially when I was younger, you know, you get all worked, how many ever get worked up over something? Nobody in this room? Few of you. And you're ready to go in there and read them the right act. Then you decide, maybe I should just let them clarify what's going on. And you ask the question, and you find out your whole assumptions were totally wrong. And you're sitting there going, boy, am I glad I didn't say anything because I'd have made a fool of myself. So I'll be slow to speak. The Bible's pretty smart, you know. So Jesus, he ignores them. And... And now he, now he challenges them eventually. You know, they're just kind of like, come on, Jesus. So he looks, it says, Jesus bends down. He starts to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning, they just would not let off. 
How many ever met some people just in your face? No space. They just kept it up. He straightened up and he said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. What an amazing answer. He says, okay, go ahead, stone her. But before you pick up the rock, only the sinless person can do it. Oh, he's got them reflecting on their own lives. What is he doing? It's the plank and the, and the speck of sawdust idea. Before you can correct somebody, you better take a hard look at yourself, right? When these guys started reflecting on themselves, guess what happened? The Spirit of God, I think, zeroed in on them and said, I've sinned, how can I, how can I throw a rock? <laughs> you know? and, and it's a beautiful story because it says, Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground at this. Those who heard him began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. Because, you know, the older people, they, they have a little more experience in life and realize, you know, I kind of messed up a few times in my lifetime. If, you know, if somebody was going to throw a rock for that experience way back then, I'd be dead right now. And I'm so glad today to say to you, if Jesus hadn't forgiven me, I'd be so lost today. I'd be so broken today. I'd be so messed up today, you know. I'd have had no hope. I wouldn't have had a prayer. I grew up in a dysfunctional home. I'd have been, if I'd have went down that route, oh, I don't even want to think about it, you know. See what I'm getting at? So easy to throw a rock. So eventually they back away. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter two, we have to address our own issues. You therefore have no excuse. You who pass uh, judgment, on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you pass judgment. You're doing the same things. I like what Jonathan Swift, he was a guy that wrote uh, Gulliver's Travels once says, we have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. Ouch. Let us be careful, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that we move past just being right to being loving. Come on now. Isn't that true? Let's move beyond that stage. Grow up. You know what? Everyone in this room messes up a time or two. And how many are glad when you are the culprit that someone shows you mercy rather than judgment? Amen? Amen. You know, hey, if you're standing before the judge at court and you were speeding... You're not pleading for innocence, you're pleading for mercy, right? If you're honest, you'll plead for mercy. Most of us are in denial. Oh, I didn't do anything wrong, you know. Here's another one. Warren Wordsby says, professed Christians who hate one another usually disguise their hatred under the zeal for truth or purity. Ouch. I'm concerned about this. I'm concerned that some people who name the name of Christ are professing something they don't possess because the end result of our faith should be love. You know what, do we want people to live right? Yes, we do. But why do we want them to live right is the real question, because I love them. Because when I see someone sin, I know that it's hurting them and other people. It's not that I think I'm better than them, you know, I just know that that's going to cause a lot of problems. And so when I try to talk to people, and I'm going to just say it to this way, you know, I have to correct people sometimes as a pastor. But let me just say this when you're doing it. When you're correcting a behavior, that does not mean you're correcting that the person is useless. 
That's a, it's a behavior. So a lot of times when I'm talking to someone, I start with affirming who they are as a person and their value and my respect for them and the dignity that they show as an individual and all the positive things in their life. And then it's so much easier to say to them, you know, however, I see something that's inconsistent with who you really are. Isn't that a beautiful transition? And it's this area that I can see that's gonna diminish everything else you stand for. And I know that's not what you want. I'm showing dignity. See, when you don't correct people and show them dignity, they're not gonna respond to, you know, you're an idiot. You know, smarten up. Well, you know, that kind of creates a little defensiveness inside of people. Do you follow what I'm saying? I mean, who, which approach would you rather have? The first approach that affirms you as a person and says, you know, I see this problem and I know that's not what you want and I can see this is going to cause problems and, you know, please, you know, consider what you're doing and I'm praying that, you know, God will help you with his grace to get past this in your life. Or do you want somebody to go, you're a stupid idiot. Can't, can't you just grow up? You should know better. Just, I'm asking you, which approach do you want? The, fir- the first approach or the second approach? You want, the, you want the first approach, that's good. Anybody want the second approach? Kelly, do you want the second approach? <laughs> Not really. What, you've used it. <laughs> that's why I'm preaching the sermon, Kelly. I'm trying to help you to move to the first approach. You've just heard everybody else say they want it. <laughs> okay, I'm teasing. He's, he's teasing, by the way. He's a lot of fun. That's why we can do that. Okay, thirdly, Jesus gave time for their consciences to do the work. We talked about that. You know, there's an abbot by the name of Abbot Moses. He said, they who are conscious of their own sins have little eyes or no eyes for the sins of their neighbors. That's a very interesting statement. What is he saying? He's not fault-finding. That doesn't mean you don't see them. It just means you're not picking people apart. How many know that if you're an extremely picky person and you're going to pick, 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 and some people, I'm going to tell you why their marriages don't work. Because you're a fault finder. You're critical. You can never find anything of value in the other person. After a while, the other person begins to believe, you know, you can say that you love them, but if you're constantly criticizing them, after a while, that, that does not resonate. Hello? Are we getting a picture? You know, I've learned something in life affirmation and encouragement does more to motivate people to change than criticism and fault-finding. I learned this from my father. He wasn't a believer, but I'll tell you what. He was an amazing affirmer and an encourager. And it helped me a lot growing up as a child. I never felt like, oh, I could never please my dad. No, my dad made us work really hard. He had really high standards. I remember that. But when he'd come in, he'd go, phenomenal job. Couldn't have done it better myself. See, high support, high expectation. I actually had that in my life. Good for me. I had some positive things too going on. See, I think sometimes when we look at our upbringing, sometimes we can only focus on the negative. Man, try finding some of the positive things too. There are there. They're there somewhere. You'll find them. Finally, Jesus doesn't condemn us. I love this. He straightens up. He says, woman, where are they? You mean your accusers, right? And what, is, what does she say? No one, he, he, has no one condemned you? By the way, who is the condemner? Who is the accuser of the brethren? Thank you, the devil. You know when you and I become accusers, 
We're just playing the role of the devil. That's not the role I want to play. I want to play the role of Christ in the story, okay? So, he says, no one condemn you. No one, sir, she said. Listen to these beautiful words. Neither do I condemn you. Oh, thank you. She was guilty. I don't condemn you. Beautiful words of forgiveness. Amen? Powerful words. Of all the people there, Jesus was the only one who had never sinned. He was the only one who could have thrown a rock, but he didn't. His response was one of mercy. He didn't give her what she deserved, which was death. Jesus now was not justifying her behavior. It's not that we accept sinful behavior as legitimate, for that would be an unloving thing to do. Sin always corrupts, always destroys. Yet sin can disguise itself in religious forms called legalism. This is not moving, okay. Legalism is just an outward conformity to God's word without love. There's an absence of inward transformation of the heart. You know the tragedy is we can pretend we're Christians, we can do things on the outside, but the inside isn't changing, that's a bad problem. What am I saying? Lord, open my heart, allow love to flow into it. It's not that I want people to sin, I don't, but I don't think our job is to condemn people. We're not the judge, right? We could go on and on. Listen to how Paul says, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him underline the word gently then look at the next part but watch who not them yourself why because you could easily be tempted you know one of the things I try to do is I say okay if I'm in the other person's shoes how would I want someone to address me now would I want them to address me of course I would I don't want to die in my sins but how do we do it is the important thing let me move on to the second attitude Okay, yeah, let me just say this. Charles Swindoll says in his book, The Grace Awakening, to show grace is to extend favor or kindness to one who doesn't deserve it and can never earn it. That's a powerful thing. Let's move on to the second attitude. It's to condone another sinful behavior. This is the other extreme. You know, we live in a culture today that's condoning sin. Come on now. That was listening to a sports talk show host. I like sports. Actually, I learn a lot, but I, start, I also learn something of the attitude of the culture. One of the football players spoke out against a person who has a lifestyle that the Bible doesn't support. <laughs> and, but he was doing it in a nice way. He says, I don't dislike this person. I just don't agree with his lifestyle. And the announcer makes his great statement. Come on, now this is 2014. This guy's still living with the dinosaurs. I'm going, no, he's not. He's got a biblical worldview that conflicts with our present cultural worldview. That's what's going on there. Notice what Jesus, you know, we'll go this way. If we think tolerance is the order of the day, let me just point out something. Is it a loving thing to allow someone to destroy themselves? Is that the loving thing to do? If you're married to an alcoholic or a drug addict, you know, what's the loving thing to do? Continue to enable them to continue in that lifestyle? 
Is that the loving thing? Just live and let live? Or is that the loving thing to do as family members, get all the family together and actually have a confrontation in a loving way and say, you are out of control. Your life's a mess. We love you too much to allow you to kill yourself. This is an intervention. And we're going to help you get help. Which is the more loving thing to do? The second one, of course. You know, Jesus didn't condemn her, but he, but he did challenge her. I love what he says. He says, neither do I condemn you in verse 11. Go now and leave your life of sin. In other words, okay, you're caught. You've done this, but don't continue to do it. I've forgiven you. I don't condemn you for it, but move on. Don't live there, right? So he's not condoning her behavior. He's giving her a message of forgiveness and hope, but he doesn't stop there. He gives her a new direction in life. Folks, that's the loving thing to do. He challenged her to leave her life of sin. He gave her a new beginning. Hey, isn't it awesome? How many would like to say, I'd like to start all over again, please. Can we reset my life button? I like a new beginning. I got the good news for you. You can have that. When you come to Christ, you get a new beginning. You hit the reset button. Hallelujah. Now, that doesn't mean all the problems from the past go away, but you now have Christ helping you walk through those issues in your life. Jesus didn't condemn her because he covered her sins. I love it. He knew he was going to die on the cross for her. He could forgive her because he was going to die for her. Isn't that beautiful? He was going to solve the problem. You know, I've been studying on holiness. I love this. And I've come away with a whole new, deeper, richer, biblical understanding. And I'll just say this, that everything Jesus did literally overwhelmed the religious sensibilities of the people of his time because he did everything that they thought was the wrong thing to do. You know, touching a leper. In the Old Testament, leprosy was considered an unclean person. You stayed away from them. What does Jesus do? He walks up and touches them. How can Jesus do that? Because though that person is unclean, Jesus is clean, and whoever Jesus touches becomes clean. Hallelujah. And that's why it's so important that you and I come to Christ and allow Jesus to touch our lives because our uncleanliness becomes clean. He changes us. It says, God made him who had not sinned to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Forgiveness is not denying that sin has been committed, but rather it's choosing not to allow sin to destroy the relationship. I want you to think about that. You should write that one down. And I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. In Peter, it says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Can I just say this? When I have a relationship with someone and I know that this is their tendency and I don't, maybe, I know that it's a sinful tendency, if I want to maintain that relationship with that person and maybe I've even talked to them about it, but you know, I can see that this is a struggle in their life. If I want to maintain that relationship, what do I have to do? I have to cover that with love. In other words, I cannot hold that against them continuously. Otherwise, you don't have a relationship. It's real simple. You know, it's a difficult thing to do. It's what am I basically saying? Sometimes you have to accept the person for who they are. You know, that's a very powerful thing, by the way. Because most of us in this room go, I'm just going to straighten them out. I'm going to change them. I'm going to make them the kind of person I want them to be. No, I think we have to accept people for who they are. And if we want to have a relationship with them, 
Sometimes we have to accept this is who they are. This is what they're like. And this is what they're always going to be like. And I got to keep forgiving. Hey, I got to practice forgiveness. Yay. Some of you go, what? Well, think about it, you know. Read the Bible. Read the New Testament. We get opportunities to learn how to do this stuff. If you want to have relationships with people, you got to put up with a few things. You got to forgive a few things. It's true. Or you won't have a relationship. It's the way it works. We cover people's sins by forgiving them. And it's often a gracious act of mercy and forgiveness that actually brings about a change in their life. You know, Sometimes when you treat somebody so lovingly, they go to you later on. You know, I just could not believe you put up with me all these years. You just kept loving and accepting me for just who I am. And it motivated me to want to change. Rather than being connected to somebody who says, you got to get your life straightened out and they're constantly in your space about change. What is that message saying? I don't love you. I reject you. You know, I'm just helping you with relationships here today. Let me go to the last attitude because we're running out of time here. And this is the important one. is one of gracious confrontation. Jesus affirmed her by giving her forgiveness and a new sense of direction. He's giving a clear direction of what needs to be done. Otherwise, some serious consequences would destroy a person's life. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we find a very challenging issue that arose in the church. A believer had fallen into sin. He was involved in sexual immorality. He was sleeping with his mother's, his father's mother. Okay? Obviously, it's not his mother. Father's wife, sorry. Get this straight. His father was married to a woman who he was now sleeping with. You go, that's a little weird, Pastor. Yeah, it was a little weird. Matter of fact, Paul says, this is usually not even happening among non-believers. It's a little out there. Okay? But the problem in the church there was, well, you have to understand Greeks. I'm not picking on an ethnic group, but you have to understand the first century Greek mentality. Promiscuity was normal in that culture, very normal. At a high level, you and I don't even understand. Do you know when people around here say, you know, things are terrible, never, it's never been worse. If we lived in the first century, we'd all be shocked. You'd be shocked out of your minds because our value system of being Christians for 2,000 years has had a, actually a very positive impact on our culture. It was far worse in the first century. But Paul says, you can't tolerate that behavior because a little leaven is going to destroy the whole church. You've got to address it. It says here in 1 Corinthians 5, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife and you are proud. In other words, you're going, look how tolerant we are. We just let everything slide. Okay, shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? You should be weeping, not rejoicing over this. You don't extend the measure to let every sin slide because you have to understand it brings death. You needed to put him out of the fellowship. This is a very extreme act because when people are in sin, they don't see clearly what's going on. Drug addicts don't think they have a problem, many of them. Alcoholics don't think they have a problem. Isn't that true? The first step towards help is acknowledging you have an issue. You can't get to first base until you admit, I got a problem. The moment you admit you got a problem, you're halfway there. 
Well, there's more to do than that, but that's a big step. He goes on to say, your boasting's not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Often sin, when sin comes, it'll always diminish people. So Paul's giving guidelines. He says, I wrote, I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or of the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. In other words, you cannot expect the same standards for non-believers as you can for Christians. That's what he's basically telling us here. Now, I want to make another statement here that he's not making, but it's true. What happens when people like this, who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters, comes to Christ and God forgives them? Shouldn't we forgive them? Amen. Because if we don't, we don't have a church. Because we're guilty of something in this list. That's just a, the list could be a lot bigger. This is just a suggested list. If you really want to get down to it, if we just start naming every single sin possible, we'd all have to stand somewhere down that list. Right? Come on now. We'd all be standing. Somewhere in the past, I did that. I'd have to stand. Yes, I'm guilty. I was guilty of that, but Christ forgave me. Thank God for that. Okay? Now, he goes, now I'm writing to you. You must not associate. And he goes, "Um, with such a man don't even eat. What business it is of mine to judge those outside the church? In other words, that's not my job. That's God's job. Are you not to judge those inside? In other words, You need to deal with the sin issues within the family of God is what he's saying. So he said, God will deal with the outsiders. Expel the wicked man from among you. In other words, this guy says he's a Christian and he's living like this and he thinks he's still a Christian when he's doing these things. He's deceiving himself, Paul is saying. He's actually behaving like an outsider. Now, what I say is, we're living in a different culture, but I'm gonna say this. What we need to do is treat them as if they're not saved. That's what I think he's saying. So how do you treat a non-believer? You still gotta love them, but you don't have to agree with them. You just, when every time they talk about what they're doing, go, hey, that's wrong. (laughs) Tell me what you want, but it's not right, it's not healthy, it's destroying you. You know, as long as people understand this is your position. I love you, but I don't agree with your lifestyle. I love you, but I don't agree with this behavior. It's not healthy, that's why. I love you so much that this behavior is killing you, therefore I hate that behavior, but I love you so much, I'm gonna hang with you and support you until you get through this thing. Okay, now. So eventually in the second letter, he writes back, this man's repented. But you know what happens with people? How many know they went from toleration to intolerance? Now they won't let them back into the church. So Paul has to write another letter saying, let them back in. The point of discipline is to correct bad behavior, not to condemn the person. You see, let them back in, he says. You'll notice that not all of the people agree with Paul's approach. They wanted to continue to disassociate and punish them. They were on the side of being right. They were struggling with forgiveness issues in their own soul, I believe that. He says, now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to what? Reaffirm your love for him. See, it's very important. Love is the motivation that we should have as Christians. Okay. Well, let me just close with this. 
One of the roles of the church is to be salt and light in the world. Isn't that true? That's our role. And by living the truth in a loving way, I think we're keeping our culture from total moral demise, rot, corruption. Whenever the church accommodates a sinful culture by remaining silent, the church becomes part of the cause of the demise of the culture. So you and I have to say, you know, that's maybe what the world says, but that's not what God says. You know, people may be living there, but that's not how I'm gonna live. Amen? You know, we're gonna, we're gonna stand for what's right more by our life than even by our words. We're just gonna do the right stuff. And what really messes with people's heads is when you can continually be loving. See, they have a hard time. They, they wanna see us as judging but when you're saying, no, that's not healthy, that's gonna destroy you, but we're maintaining a supportive and loving attitude, we're maintaining that middle road. How many are beginning to say, wow, you know, Jesus goes, the, the road is narrow. How many catch on? There's a path that's right, it's a narrow pathway. There's two extremes, condemning, condoning, and then there's the loving confrontation. Let me, let me read this passage from the message. Over in Samaria, this is the message again, I saw prophets or preachers acting like silly fools. Shocking, they preached using that no God bail for a text, messing with the minds of my people. And the Jerusalem prophets are even worse. They're horrible, sex-driven, living a lie, subsidizing a culture of wickedness and never giving it a second thought. They're as bad as those wretches in old Sodom and degenerates in old Gomorrah. So here's the message to the prophets from God. I'm gonna cook up a supper of maggoty meat with after-dinner drinks of strychnine. <laughs> it's a strong language. See, Eugene Peterson is trying to give us so that we're gonna be rocked by these words, which it works. The Jerusalem prophets are behind all this. They're the cause of the godlessness polluting this country. What is he saying? He's saying they're not confronting the people with their bad behavior. And in a theocracy, which we'd interpret as being like the church. We have to expect the preacher to speak to the congregation and say, guys, we can't act like everybody else, number one, okay? And number two, we can be neither condemning nor condoning. We have to walk a middle ground of loving people, of speaking into their lives and saying what you are doing is not healthy. It's going to destroy you. It's going to hurt others. I love you too much to say this is no big deal. Amen? Important? Yes. Critical. I don't want to have God say to me, I'm just going to smoke you as a preacher because you never told my people what needed to be said. Amen? So let's pray today that God would help us. Let's stand as I close in prayer today. I'm not going to give an altar call, but what I'm going to say here is, is this. If you want to continue the discussion, you know, we have elders. They're prepared to come down here. If you come down here that says you want to keep talking about this, we will have elders and altar workers prepared to talk with you and pray with you and help you walk through a particular situation you're in, okay? I'm giving you a general guideline. Has this been helpful? Has anybody been helped today? Does everybody understand that there's two extremes? We gotta go down the middle, you know? And ultimately, you gotta say to yourself, okay, God, I need to be loving about this, but I cannot back down on what's the right thing to do.
It puts us in a tough place, doesn't it? See, all of the peacemakers in here go, I hate this sermon. You know, because you see you got the prophet types and the peacemaker or pastoral types. And it kind of gets to both types. Because it's pushing us in the other direction. To the, you know, get it right type of person, I'm saying you got to be more loving. To the, you know, the person is the peacemaking type, you've got to be more loving. What? I'm not saying anything. Yeah, that's the problem. You're not loving. If you're loving, you would help be helping people get into the middle. Does everybody get this? See, some of you think, oh, I got off light and I'm a peacemaker. I never caused, you know, I'm a peacekeeper, actually, not a maker. Peacemakers can create conflict because they're helping bring peace into that situation by dealing with it. You know, God is calling us, folks, to get a balance. Neither condemning nor condoning. Find the middle ground. Father, I pray that you'll help us as we relate to one another to find that middle ground and not to say, you know, sin's not a big deal. It is a big deal because it's destructive. But on the other side, Lord, help us not to be so legalistic and rigid and harsh and condemning and critical and fault-finding. But Lord, help us to really develop an attitude, a mature attitude of love towards one another where we care enough about people that we're investing our lives with them. We're learning how to overcome by forgiving when it's needed, but also addressing issues where those need to be addressed. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.